This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Hector and Aaron, uh, welcome to Talking Pop Health. To kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Absolutely, happy to be here. Uh, Hector Torres, I am a managing director and uh, co-head of Focal Point Partners Healthcare Investment Banking Practice, uh, where we really focus on providing uh, comprehensive investment banking and M&A advisory services to healthcare organizations of of all sizes, shapes, and and types. Uh, my, My background has has been 100% dedicated to to healthcare uh, within the NMA advisory space, uh, with, with particular emphasis on working with um, hospitals and health systems, independent physician groups, um, non-acute care care providers of all sizes and types. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'll turn it over to my colleague Aaron Newman. Yeah, excited to be here as well, uh, Aaron Newman, Vice President at Focal Point Partners. Uh, very similar to Hector. I've spent uh, nearly a decade now, which is the uh, almost the entirety of my career, uh, being a consultant, uh, financial advisor, and M and A advisor to a variety of healthcare organizations, mostly on the acute care side. A lot of non-for-profit hospital merger work and uh, strategic consulting work, but also lately working with a lot of. Uh, single specialty, multi-specialty physician groups across the country. So on this podcast, we've really had a lot of people on who are focused on population health as a care model or as a form of data um, or a way of, of interacting among providers. Um, can, can we focus a little bit here on why should someone care about pop health more from a strategic concern? I mean, if I'm working with St. Elsewhere Health System, um, you know, what, why do I care just as far as how I plan my business and strictly that? The proverbial question, I think, that um, is facing healthcare providers, whether it's at the individual uh, physician level um, or, or sitting in the executive suite of a, a regional or, or multi-state health system, is um, population health is absolutely critical because in many ways it is core foundation to um, the, the value equation in healthcare and the sustainability of the entirety of the industry, which is being able to deliver the highest quality care in the appropriate setting of care um, at the lowest possible cost. Um, but, but we must be thinking about population health management and, and how do we go about attaining the, the capabilities, the infrastructure, uh, the human capital, and the, the strategic alignment across all facets of each and every participant in the industry. We've done a lot of work lately with, uh, with non-for-profit hospitals who have seen a, a really a shift in their business from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting to provide that lower cost of care that Hector was alluding to. And it's really transformed their business. And uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we worked on a, a project with, with Northwell Health to essentially understand and uh, help them build out their strategic plan for, for ASCs in Brooklyn, New York, which is obviously a uh, emerging population, a lot more affluent population, but I think we're going to see and continue, we have seen and continue to see uh, acute care providers across the country really struggle with how do we go from getting our business from an inpatient setting to an outpatient setting and how that's going to impact our financial uh, uh, strategy because it, it really is. I mean, 
we, uh, we like to tell a lot of our non-for-profit healthcare clients, it's really a bifurcated market right now of, of haves and haves nots. And it's really all uh, based on ac access and ability to uh, have capital, right? You have your rural healthcare providers, your, your smaller systems in, uh, in, in suburban and even metro areas that just don't have access to the capital markets that are losing margin and can't make the investment to keep up with information technology and everything that you need to invest in a population health strategy. Then you have your larger systems, uh, you know, here your, your advocates, uh, which is obviously getting bigger and bigger by the, by the second you have a large balance, you can go to the bond markets and really do everything from a population health investment perspective that's going to enable him them to skate where the puck is proverbially going. Is this a voluntary transformation or is this something where some people think they have a gun to their head and others, and we all know some in your niche, the, the large health systems, people who are saying, ah, we're going to ride it out. Well, you know, there sometimes are management teams and boards that just figure, you know, things are going okay right now. Let's just sort of keep going the way they are. Are, are people really changing? Do they have guns to their head? What's yeah. what's going on out there? Healthcare in the United States is certainly very local. Um, the dynamics are very different um, market to market and even sub-market to sub-market. Um, so, so it's really about understanding um, and appreciating those dynamics because those are the ones that are impacting how the velocity with which organizations really need to incorporate population health management and, and, and a comprehensive strategy to do that. So I do think that there will be differences market to market, region to region. It never hurts you to think about um, your organization as a provider of healthcare services, and that could be an independent physician practice, it could be an ambulatory services management company, it could be an integrated you know, health system that's national in scope. I've had the opportunity to talk with some fairly um, well-known consultants and thought leaders in the area, and, and a couple of them have told me, Eric, this pop health stuff is great, but let's be honest, there's really very little at risk for the providers in this case. The way that things are done, you know, you could have shared upside, shared downside. Um, people who are taking CAP really are only doing that within areas where they're very safe. How do you respond to that? So that's probably um, more um, accurate in, in terms of where the, the, the state of affairs is today um, th than not. Uh, I, I would certainly agree. Um, what I would say is I think we're going to see the evolution. And again, I, I go back to the velocity of the change uh, with regards to the relevance of population health management uh, become more and more prevalent in markets that are already you know, living um, with that dynamic and in, in others where it's not as relevant or hasn't really been a, a, a cornerstone uh, of any material sense, um, we'll, we'll start to see more of it. But, but I think that is a fairly accurate assessment that, you know, it, it, it's really in its, in its um, nascency or infancy in terms of the overall impact that it would have in a transformative sense to the, to the healthcare industry as a whole. Uh, but I do see it evolving and, and continuing to evolve in markets where it's already taken. We work with a lot of, you know, smaller uh, regional health systems, call them, you know, between 300 million and 800 million of net patient service revenue. And they're just very challenged from, a, from an operating perspective. And most of those systems are just worried about improving their margins in operating uh, their businesses and providing the best patient pairs possible. Uh, having said that, they don't have the time to even think about population health. Most of those folks are just kind of old school, a little bit, a little bit stodgy in their ways, fee for service. 
you know, when we look at the other end of the spectrum with the, with the haves, even those large, very well capitalized systems, only a portion of their revenue is in uh, value-based care. I think they're shifting that way and they're doing a lot of experimentation to understand what's the best model uh, to, to, uh, to, to treat our patients from a value-based care perspective, but still the majority, vast majority of the revenue streams is just old-fashioned fee-for-service and it's been very, very slow to change. And Aaron really makes a great point and, and, and we sort of live and breathe with, with this, this concept of the haves and the have-nots. And it's certainly the, the pure play example is certainly the hospitals and the health systems. Uh, but I think that the haves and the have nots are really um, across the spectrum of healthcare provider organizations. A few months ago, we were reading a, a Moody's report and, and they were saying that, you know, on average, the average independent community based health system has an operating margin of one percent. <laughs> now, now, that is a pretty well-run system because we see a lot of systems that we, we work with across the United States that actually don't even have a 1% operating margin. But but to Aaron's earlier point, if you have a 1% operating margin and you've lived historically in a fee-for-service environment and your number one objective as the administrator of that system is to keep whatever wolf is at the door at bay that day, whether it's you know your, your day's cash on hand or your relationships with your physician enterprises, the last thing that you're going to be focused on um, is a comprehensive population health strategy. So therefore, that chasm of, you know, an advocate that has the elements, meaning the capital, the infrastructure, the, 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 the human intelligence, and the wherewithal to have a strong balance sheet that allows them to say, let's think strategically and, and longitudinally uh, in, in terms of where is healthcare going over the next 15, 20, 25 years? Those are the organizations that have that luxury, that, that, that they can do that. The 1% operating margin, independent community hospital that, that's struggling just to keep the doors open, for sure. This is interesting. I don't want to go too fast, and, and I don't want to sit there and ask you a, a question um, that makes everything seem like a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say I'm at St. Elsewhere, a one-percenter, mm-hmm. um, and, and I want to survive as a standalone. Um, you know, and I, I realize this is one-size-fits-all to some degree, but where would you say I begin? I mean, how do I, how do I even yeah. approach the world? Um, I might or might not have some employed physician practices. There, you know, people are a mixed bag there. Yep. I might have a home health agency. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's a great question because we parachute into Saint Elsewhere every day. That's really we live in Saint Elsewhere, and again, it's thematic. Uh, not to be too repetitive, but but really, it, it, we see everything. Uh, we had a really great meeting with a uh, independent health system in in New Jersey several weeks ago that is doing fairly well, um, uh, but is seeing headwinds in terms of the effects of consolidation in the market and, and, and the need and desire to, to wanna be able to invest in the resources and capabilities of, of that healthcare delivery model of the future and, and seeing immense challenges in doing that. So the first thing we do when we're parachuted into St. Elsewhere is we spend a lot of time with boards, with the C-suite and executive leadership and management to really craft an articulation of that organization's goals and objectives and the ultimate sort of distillation of those goals and objectives become their guiding principles. And that's really almost a mission statement of 
who and what they are today organizationally, and this is across the entirety of the organization, and who and what they want to be in the future. So I'll throw out a little red meat here. Yeah. Uh, why not, right? Uh, I, I assume you're both aware of the New England Journal of Medicine article stating that uh, horizontal mergers in healthcare don't improve quality. And frankly, I, I beg to differ on that mm -hmm. point. Um, I've done that publicly and I actually gotten into it, well, in the past and almost up to the present yeah. uh, with the FTC. Um, but that's just Eric's view of the world. Um, yeah. You know, what are you seeing with Floyd? And I mean, you've, you've enumerated a number of, of positives. Um, how are you going to make sure that, that those quality improvements and enhancements really take place? Are you building yeah. guardrails? In my experience, at least, uh, over the last 15 or so years in that, you know, a lot of the times the thesis, the industrial thesis of why you would combine two organizations in healthcare, it's obviously to be able to provide better quality care, more accessibility to that quality of care in the right setting of care at a lower cost, right? That's the industrial logic of why vertical integration and horizontal mergers um, among and between non-for-profit to non-for-profit health systems typically occur. Um, and, and, and in 100% of the instances that we advise either on the buy side of the transaction or on the sell side, those in, that industrial logic is front and center throughout the course of executing the transaction. It, it really is. It, and it's, it's fascinating that it's almost in 100% of the time we always, they, the client and the buyer always go back to, well, this is going to help us improve X, Y, and Z and, and create these synergies, these efficiencies, and improve the overall care delivery in our market. And what happens inevitably is the day after the closing, those priorities and elements tend to be forgotten for some reason. I think very well said, Hector. I would just add um, from, from, a, from a synergies perspective, I, I you know, there's the Wall Street Journal article. There was obviously the article that you alluded to, Eric. Uh, a lot, a lot of negative press recently about, you know, horizontal integration, and it may not have the benefits that we really think it is. But you know, two benefits, two benefits that I would like to talk about. One is just you know on the population health theme. In order to effectuate populate, population health management effectively, you need attributable lives, right? And that's why you see a lot of these larger health systems like Atrium mm -hmm. going outside their, their market in order to get more access to attributable lives and really make population health with a, pop with a population that they have enough data. To position themselves as a full cap. Yep, yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, rather than just sort of skimming off the margins. Right? Exactly. I mean, in many ways, Optum, um, which is the division of, of, of United Blue Cross Blue Shield and, and is now, I believe, the largest employer of, of physicians in the United States, um, they are doing that on a, on a, on a macro level, right? Um, th they're in the population health management business um, and they, the, the leadership there would, would tell you that in that they want attributable lives and reinforced by a data analytics chassis that is, you know, something out of a, you know, publicly traded IT company than it is a, a management organization that's in, in the healthcare delivery business, if you will. And, and that just shows you that those are prerequisites. Those aren't nice to haves. If you don't have the ability to collect the data in a sequential manner that's intelligible and measure performance within the construct of that data, then the attributable lives mean nothing, right? So you have to marry 
both elements, and Optum is an example of an organization that's doing it exceptionally well. You know, boiling everything down, are you saying that you need size to provide quality care in the new world? In order to maintain market relevance and ultimately attain um, market indispensability, um, you need size and scale. The days of the independent healthcare provider in the United States, whether that's the solo practitioner physician or the community-based hospital, um, are, are somewhat limited because of all of the requirements. And I'll be now I'll be even even more uh, controversial. My thesis is, if I only knew the timing, uh, I would tell you because I don't. But my thesis is, at some point in the future, maybe in 50 years from now, maybe 100, uh, we're not going to have you know, the thousands of hospitals and health systems that we have in the United States today. I think we're gonna end up with 50 very large integrated healthcare delivery model organizations that are going to serve the entire continuum of care within their geographic region or contiguous multi-state region, whatever that may be. And, and you'll also have organizations that are national in scale, but there won't be thousands of them. I agree completely with Hector, and I think the footprint that we currently have, the, the bricks and mortar footprint is, is gonna completely transform, and it's beginning to transform, obviously through telehealth, the non-for-profit healthcare and for-profit healthcare kind of acute care setting footprint is just overbuilt in, in this country, and the way healthcare is heading, uh, that's gonna need to change. And ultimately, I think that's gonna drive the cost of care down and provide better care for patients. Let me come at things from a little bit of a cynical aspect Please do. for you. Yeah, we, lo we love cynical. Um, so, so, you know, could it be argued that some of this consolidation is just a response to these big payers who hold the purse strings and the only way that providers respond is by banding together and becoming larger themselves? And you've also got a government that frankly doesn't like regulating fragmented mm -hmm. industries. We all know regulating widely fragmented industries takes a lot of resources and and um, is, is hard to do, yep. especially with consistency. So there are all these pressures, maybe even independent of quality, that are requiring um, organizations to go together. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at any industry in the United States, um, there's not a lot of them that are, that are as fragmented as healthcare today. <laughs> Airlines, any, any industry of scale and size has consolidated. Um, whereas in healthcare, um, you know, there's not one organization that controls more than two and a half percent of the spend. Uh, I'm using round numbers just to just to sort of give the the concept, but but um, it's just incredible that in an organization that is so core and foundational to the U.S. economy, and and so much of a percentage of GDP is spent as a result of it is so fragmented and, and, and frankly inefficient. Uh, fragmentation and inefficiency are directly correlated. Let's look at things from a slightly different perspective, shall we? Um, if I'm a payer in a pop health world and I've got systems that are capable with attribution, taking cap, what, what am I other than another mouth to feed? I mean, what is my role, right? I mean, is that what is going on with United as they see the future? Because right now, You've got uh, Humana coming out saying that they're a healthcare provider with, what, an insurance arm or something yep. like that? So, you know, all the old lines are getting reshuffled, and maybe, maybe I'm being too mean to the, uh, to the payers here, but it's resulting in, in a rapid transformation. It is, absolutely. Uh, in many ways, uh, let, me, let me give you a, a sort of finance analogy. Uh, the old insurance business model, the old payer 
insurance model is really akin to the the stock broker specialist on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange that's literally taking numbers and facilitating sales on a piece of paper and being the intermediary. And today, they still have those folks there, but they're really more out of tradition than anything else because all of that is done electronically, right? Um, in many ways, the, the, the forward-thinking um, payer organizations have, have, a, have already assimilated to needing to diversify and think holistically and strategically about how do they maintain relevant their re- organizational relevance within the entirety of the healthcare industry food chain. You're but, right. I agree with you. Um, but let's go back to, to good old St. Elsewhere, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which could be listening to this podcast and they'd say, well, I'm going to bring in Hector and Aaron and they're going to say, throw in the towel. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know, think you, that's true. You know what's interesting about that is, and, and by the way, we get accused of that all the time, so, so <laughs> we're, 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 we're fine. Um, a lot of the times our guidance and advice is, is, is actually not that. It, it is um, understanding them completely uh, from a financial, strategic, clinical, and um, contextualizing those three pillars within what's happening more broadly in their market and in the United States in, in many instances, uh, a lot of what we're able to provide them is, is with an arm's length third party view of the health and efficacy of their organization. And in a lot of times, our advice is not necessarily a change of control transaction where they have to basically become part of a larger entity, uh, but more around understanding the opportunities for growth and solidification of their market share and market relevance through non-change of control transaction initiatives. And, and let me amplify that because that's, that's the exact approach is a, a lot of, and, and then also let me anchor it in population health because uh, that, that's the topic. Um, uh, you know, population health and all the things that go into being able to do that effectively it is in large part what ultimately um, informs organizations' desire to want to pursue an affiliation or a partnership or, or, or ultimately a change of control transaction. But, but the thing about that is, and this is why the guiding principles and the work that we do on the front end is so absolutely critical, is population health management capabilities can be attained in many ways, and it may not require an M&A transaction. Couldn't you also view them, though, as the camel's nose under the tent? Because a lot of times you're just cannibalizing your core operations and handing them over to someone else who might or might not have an aligned goal at the end of the day. So if I go and I, oh, let's say I have some ASC joint ventures Mm -hmm. and I empty out some of my outpatient hospital beds as a consequence. Yep. uh, Well, over time, you know, although maybe the revenues I indirectly control are a little bigger, I'm really losing control over a core function, uh, the ability to provide surgery. Yeah, I, I think you, you bring up a great point and it's kind of goes to the population health point, right? Because if it's better for that patient to get the episode of care in an ambulatory service setting that maybe the hospital has a joint venture with, instead of being in the hospital, what's ultimately gonna cost the pay, cost the healthcare system less money and also have a better benefit for the patient? It's probably gonna be that ASC episode of care instead of keeping that patient in the hospital. Again, I think it's this, this shift towards the ambulatory setting, towards the outpatient setting to the lowest cost of care that is 
really, really strategically problematic for a lot of these, uh, these acute care providers. Running a hospital is very different than running an ASC is very different than uh, running if, a physician practice. If you're the CEO of a, of a, of a large health system, you got to be able to run all of those efficiently and, and have them be interoperable. And that's the alchemy, right? And, and there are certainly cornerstone organizations that um, do it exceptionally well and are continuously improving it. But, but the vast majority of organizations really struggle. Let's assume you're talking to the board of St. Elsewhere and the CEO of St. Elsewhere. What are three things you would tell them right off the top of your head right now that they would want to get their arms around um, for whatever ends they're achieving, whether it's independence or, or combining with someone? Yeah. Well, again, um, it would really be understanding what are the things and we ask this question all the time. When you put your head on your pillow at night, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about the most? And usually by asking that probing question, you get a lot of insight and intelligence on not just the organization, but certainly what's happening within its market. Um, so we, 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 would, we, we would first ask uh, the question of what keeps you up at night? What are you really concerned about as you operate this organization and, 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 and obviously do, do the best job possible in doing that. That would be question number one. Number two, um, it would be, um, how are you thinking about the healthcare delivery model that you presently have and the, deficiency, the potential deficiencies that you see in it today? And most importantly, I would say, the potential deficiencies you see in it in the future. And that's corollary to the first question because usually the things that keep them up at night are the things that they're seeing in the horizon but not necessarily being impacted by today. Um, and the third is, what are you doing about it? Aaron, let's, let's turn to you real quick. A um, lot of money in private equity right now, and there are a lot of, a lot of established systems are, are partnering with private equity players. Uh, do you see this as a good or a bad thing, or how, how do you view that? from the lens of providing the services you do to some of these systems. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, probably over the past four to five years, the velocity of private equity coming into the healthcare provider market has, has really, really accelerated. So what's the acute care healthcare provider uh, have to say about all of this? Well, you know, if, if, I, if I were in their shoes and if I was in the boardroom, and a lot of times uh, we are in that boardroom, it, it's really disrupting the way that they're uh, thinking about their strategies on a long-term uh, basis because they're they're not used to competing with you know a Wall Street type mindset that is really thinking about profitability. So how do you respond to someone say the FTC saying, "Well, competition is good. Um, isn't this a good thing? We're shaking up the old guard." I think it's definitely a lot more competition in this space, and I think it's forcing a lot of the uh, legacy non-for-profit health systems to, to really rethink their strategic model, which in my opinion is a good thing. Um, competition's healthy for, for, the, for the space, and uh, you know, I, I would rather see healthcare be the cost be driven down, and I think private equity is actually going to do that by making every, the, the system a lot more efficient on the whole. It's going to take time, right? but uh, it, it's gonna happen. But systems have a lot of fixed costs. I mean, these private equity yep. entities are almost by definition very nimble. Right. You know, they're coming in late to the game without these legacy costs, and yep. the bricks and mortar, yep. and these huge bond debts that are sitting out there. Yep. Um, you know, couldn't you say that's unfair? 
Now, I'm not sure if it's unfair, but your, your non-for-profit healthcare system that does have a lot of fixed costs, how are they going to compete in the long term with, with private equity that is partnering on a much more physician uh, model? The, the legacy healthcare system, and I underline system uh, in, in bold font, uh, is really overbuilt from a bricks and mortar perspective. And that's driving a lot of unnecessary costs into the system. So maybe private equity coming in is going to drive uh, some of those uh, bricks and mortar that don't necessarily need to be there out of the system and ultimately keep the cost of care down. But I want to go to something here. Um, I'm old enough to remember the old physician practice management mm-hmm. company. You know, that was all the rage. Yeah. Um, you know, private equity now, you know, arguably built on a, a somewhat different model and one that requires scale as compared to you know, sells scale that doesn't really end up existing. You know, is that a correct way to categorize it? I I think it's very different in in many ways, structurally, for sure. Um, Because inherently, um, there were just some some transactional structural considerations with Vicor that that were based on speculation rather than inherent asset value. The other difference, which is very real, is the level of sophistication. Um, with private equity, uh, private equity firms, you know, have some of the smartest people in the world <laughs> working with on their behalf and and, and 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 in their management teams, and 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 they're very astute in understanding macro trends and assimilating them to investment opportunities uh, within healthcare in particular. Um, so when you have that level of sophistication, rigor, and discipline being deployed in a structurally, albeit improved manner relative to how um, the FICOR deals were, were, were ultimately structured, I think you just, you, just, you just end up in a different situation. The issue with FICOR is they didn't understand the proper incentive mechanisms for physicians. And if one thing that private equity is good at is, is understanding incentives. So this might be a little far afield, but sure. since, you're, you, since you're touching on this, let's go there. Um, RVUs. Now, obviously, the solution to the old, gee, you're going to get X hundred thousand dollars a year physician. Boy, we need to keep this doctor productive. We're going to pay you with RVUs or in some cases adjusted RVUs, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Couldn't you argue that that flies in the face of pop health because it over incentivizes procedures and underweights proper care management? Yeah. So completely understand the the, the juxtaposition of, of both sides of that argument, right? Um, I think some of these more innovative physician groups that are getting really good investments from private equity, they all understand that in order to have a durable strategy, they can't have a productivity-based model that's pushing people to do the wrong sort of things, right? Because ultimately, that's going to lead to poor outcomes uh, for for the patient, and it's not going to be a successful long-term investment. So it's almost a psychological thing in a way, isn't it? You're you're taking people who are used to being at the top physicians mm-hmm. and kind of giving them the data to kind of continue their natural competitiveness with each other and, and with their communities in a way, right? Let's look at the bell curve. Let's look at the outcomes. Let's look at everything that goes into your practice and let's analyze it within the context of the broader community of physicians and understand are your patients truly sicker? Is there a way for you to modulate your practice patterns to get the best possible clinical outcome? The answer may be yes, the answer may be no, but how do you have that conversation with the scientist 
if you don't have the tools that the scientist needs to optimize what they do every day. And that, that is really a core fundamental aspect of population health management. Well, and that's the same argument you hear from health systems. You know, virtually everyone on the healthcare continuum, you know, if uh, somehow their outcomes aren't better, well, gee, it's because our population's you know more difficult, right, or sicker, or you know whatever it is that you know. And, and, and frankly, I don't think it comes from a a, a place of maliciousness or or a, phys- a physician being a, a, a bad actor. Uh, I think they're in there trying to do the right things. Uh, in a very challenging environment that's changing every day. So let's talk about non-traditional healthcare, Um, just real quick. What are you doing around social determinants of health, maybe the use of data that's scraped from non-healthcare providers and and inserted into the healthcare record? And at some point I need to have a guest come on and talk about the ins and outs of that because it's complicated. Yeah, we're not that smart. But I, I think it's an important aspect. I mean, it, it is really a, a fascinating um, industry because of that, because it's very easy to put on your finance hat and, and say, look, this is the accretive, dilutive nature of, you know, this potential transaction. And of course, it makes sense to, to, to pursue it or not pursue it based on that on that analytical construct. Right. But what's really rewarding, I think, for us and, and I think uh, our clients really appreciate is that it, it's, it's really beyond that. It, it's, it's how does this impact the patient? Because at the end of the day, that, 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 that is what our mission is. How do we improve the patient's access to care? How do we improve that patient's experience in the delivery and, and, and attainment of those healthcare services? And how do we enhance the overall clinical outcome for that patient? Um, uh, so, so social determinants of health are, are, are really fascinating because I think it's an area that has become very prevalent recently, and we'll see more of that. Well, Hector and Aaron, I really appreciate your time. Uh, welcome to Focal Point, I guess. Yeah. I think this is your first sort of public appearance through Focal Point. It is, and we're really excited. Um, uh, we have joined uh, as, as members of the healthcare investment bank, banking practice and, and really um, continue to provide best-in-class comprehensive investment banking and M&A advisory services to healthcare organizations all over the United States. Yeah, and it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you today, Eric. Uh, looking forward to partnering you, partnering with you further uh, I think it always makes the deal easier when you partner with a really good uh, deal attorney like yourself who understands the issues uh, from, from all perspectives. So um, I think there's a, a lot of good work we're going to be able to do together in the future.